You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie, and I am. I'm live. Summer programming is finished for Solidarity Breakfast this season. And yes, we're back again. A bit shaky because it's the first uh, program of the year, but we're going to be uh, joined later in the program with our long-term regular, Don Sutherland. He's going to have a little chat with us about uh, manufacturing, and uh, that probably harks back to the issues that were raised in stick together about uh, the anti uh, the uh, the rats the uh, rapid antigen tests it's interesting what uh, money is available for what but uh, when on the ground uh, there is real issues to be dealt with uh, somehow or other the machine doesn't know how to uh, respond uh, for the benefit of the uh, wider community. So it's a kind of interesting dysfunction. Anyway, uh, Don, who has been doing some research on this particular issue, considering that uh, before uh, earlier on in the pandemic there was actually a, a committee uh, it's got a grander name than that, but uh, a committee that was put together that was uh, at a federal level by the uh, Keystone Cops that are running the place at the moment um, <clears throat> that was supposed to actually be looking at uh, Australia's capacity to uh, in the manufacturing area. Um, that was part of that earlier incarnation where they were uh, apparently uh, business and uh, unions were actually talking together, but of course we know that was all just uh, some sort of uh, uh, publicity stand, uh, dance that uh, the uh, present federal government, or maybe governments in general at the moment, uh, think ERTSAT uh, uh, performance is the real thing. They seem to have uh, lost track of uh, how a machine operates uh, maybe it's because uh, many of the uh, people who uh, talk about these things is say that they don't come from the tools. They don't come from the tools because that, of course, gives people a, a little bit more of a realistic understanding of what's going on and how to actually m- manipulate the physical world. But anyway, that that's a, a different kind of discussion. So anyway, uh, Don's going to have a chat with us about that, which is great. We're going to, uh, to earlier on in the program, we're going to follow up one of the people who were uh, outside the uh, Park Hotel during the uh, Djokovic uh, carry-on, the uh, world uh, number one seed in tennis, male, 
um, was, of course, as we you, it, you, you'd have had to have been underwater not to realise that uh, the biggest issue in the entire world was the fact that uh, Djokovic is an anti-vaxxer and uh, didn't get vaccine and came to the country because he wanted to be at the Australian Open. I think that sort of encapsulates it. But then, of course, he was gathered up and put into the Park Hotel. Now, of course, the Park Hotel is where a whole lot of the uh, Medivac um, refugees have been holed up for a considerable amount of time now, uh, months, 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 years. Uh, it, it must be a year. Anyway, um, and uh, reports about how terribly and shamefully that Djokovic has been treated in the... Uh, Facilities at the Park Hotel, mouldy food, said the uh, headlines, etc., etc. And um, fascinating uh, because it gave exposure to the fact that there were all these refugees who have been basically imprisoned in the Park Hotel right in the middle of um, near the city centre in Carlton. And uh, we're going to talk to one of the... uh, Refugee Action Collective people who have been there, um, making sure that uh, the media who have been who were lined up along the uh, along um, Swanston Street, because <laughs> I rode past there and there was this uh, phalanx of uh, um, uh, cameras, etc., etc., waiting for something to happen. And the most interesting thing that had happened. Because of course I've been to uh, the rallies outside the Park Hotel, is that someone had uh, uh, created a banner, a painted banner, uh, well, well, painted uh, graffiti, I suppose you'd call it, at the entrance to Park Hotel in yellow, uh, uh, calling for the refugees to be released, uh, that it was a prison, Um, and. Anyway, we're going to find out about, get an overview of what actually happened and the key issues that are surrounding the uh, refugee issue. And uh, later on, we're going to extend our uh, discussion with um, uh, uh, Andrew Hewitt, who's the uh, Assistant uh, Assistant Secretary of the... uh, Victorian Allied Health Professionals uh, Association around how health workers are dealing with uh, COVID, the surge in Omicron, so that we can actually understand how their their members are actually dealing on the ground with something that is being, uh, many politicians appear to be uh, tragically acting as if you know, it's business as usual. You might have heard that uh, there's been a lot of pushback from uh, the unions related to uh, teaching uh, in New South Wales, for example. Uh, The independent uh, education union uh, that uh, covers private schools, independent schools um, in New South Wales, for example, has put out a release uh, uh, saying that uh, the New South Wales government... um, calling on uh, older and retired teachers to come back and uh, help uh, start the schools up again is actually putting the most vulnerable people in the community in the firing line of COVID. And, I mean, if you think about it, 
they're probably right. <laughs> so uh, these uh, pronouncements uh, don't seem to be very considered. Uh, Anyway, by the by, uh, we'll see how we go, and we'll we'll have a chat with um we I had a chat with Andrew, uh from um, VAHPA, the uh, Victorian Adelaide Health Professionals Association. He gave some pretty interesting insights into the uh, negotiations to the EBA, which of course is going on at the moment. In, despite the fact that COVID is going on ahead. And as I asked him, you know, uh, questions around if uh, there is such a staff shortage, et cetera, et cetera, why is it that workers are still being crippled with uh, low uh, remunerations and poor conditions? Because uh, it appears that the workers care about the community, but uh, other people are basically... Um, just letting it all rip. Anyway, by the by, um, there's uh, lots of things to talk about. Uh, but before we do get on to the meat and potatoes of the program uh, today, uh, there's a couple of things that uh, I don't know if it's uh, they've uh, got to your uh, um, uh, mind, but uh, there are a couple. There's some really worrying things going on at uh, the. Um, for for people who are working on the waterfront, um, now we've been getting lots of information around uh, things to do with uh, bottlenecks, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, at the um, waterfront. Because, and as we know, with COVID, uh, the um, uh, uh, primacy of um, things like. Uh, um, trucking and uh, online services and, of course, the uh, arrival of uh, containers on container ships really are exposing the international uh, uh, supply chain to everybody's consciousness. Everybody's becoming aware uh, out there in, in normal land of how all those products and all those different things appear on our shelves and um, the delays, etc., etc. Except that what seems to have failed, uh, people have failed to understand that the uh, there is uh, companies that... Um, Massive international companies that are in in control of a whole range of the logistical uh, systems that run through the country, uh, the uh, international uh, uh, supply chains. Now, one of them is Merckx. Now, this company bought uh, Switzer. Now, Switzer is the company that uh, runs the uh, towage, the all those tow. Um, Boat, uh, uh, towing boats that uh, bring all the big container ships into port. Now, they've been in this protracted um, dispute with uh, the MUA members. What they're really trying to do is to cut the uh, wages and conditions of a workforce that has been working uh, quite uh, um, uh, companionably for many years uh, and the mechanism that Switzer has been has used is, of course, the uh, 
Fair Work Commission's ability to, uh, there's this little caveat at the Fair Work Commission that says that if the company uh, and the unions of workers are unable to uh, come up with a negotiated outcome within a particular time frame, uh, you know, uh, then uh, the uh, company can apply for the um, everything to be thrown out and that they can return to the uh, to base wages and conditions. This is this is actually how our system works industrially these days. And so, what's happened with Switzer is that uh, the company is expecting that five hundred and forty workers who earn um, around one hundred and thirty thousand to to uh, two hundred thousand a year, and this is uh, because uh, the uh, we're talking about. Um, three different ty- types of workers. We've got uh, um, deckhands, engineers and masters. Now, all three of those different groups of people are actually represented by different uh, groups. Uh, the deckhands are actually um, represented by the MUA. The um, the other two, the engineers and masters, they have their own uh, associations. Now, uh, it's become clear to all three groups that uh, SITSA is gunning for all of them and so they've been working together. Now, SITSA has now uh, broken cover and is, is uh, aiming to uh, replace... Um, all of the hard-fought-for conditions and uh, wages, uh, salary arrangements for all these workers by trying to halve their pays. Now, Switzer controls almost all of the towage in the different major ports in Australia. Now, this is not just happening with Switzer. This is also happening with Patrick's. Now, Patrick's is also trying to do the same stunt with its workers, its workforce across Australia. And uh, this is an extremely uh, worrying um, aspect of uh, industrial relations right at this moment. This is an absolutely pivotal moment in uh, Australian industrial relations. It's Everything is coming to roost. Now, for the business, uh, for the big end of town, this is, of course, just fantastic. They think this is great. But, of course, for workers in general, this is just another step towards institutionalised slavery, which is what this federal government's been put in power to implement. This has been going on step by step since the Howard era. It's all about making sure that the very small uh, 1% of the world's richest people can accumulate as much illegitimate power as they possibly can. And uh, it is time for people to stand up and help these workers because they're coming for you next, as they said in the dreadful past uh, times. Anyway, here we go. Um, We'll uh, relax a little bit now that I've uh, introduced some of the major issues of the program this week with a little bit of information from other parts of the station. We are Victorians. We know fire. 
We know bushfires can be devastating, that they change direction in seconds and move faster than anyone can run. But extreme fire danger days are rare. So before you travel, check the fire danger rating. And if it's extreme or above, don't travel to those areas. If you're already there, leave. How well do you know fire? Plan, act, survive. Go to a... To the first people, January 26 signifies the beginning of colonialism, invasion and displacement, leading to 250 years of resistance, survival and protest. Join us on the 26th of January, Invasion Day special broadcast, 9 o'clock till 4pm, right here on 3CR, 8.55am. 3CR's First Nations broadcasters will be bringing you black and deadly music, news and views from activists around the country as we discuss genocide, sovereignty, treaty, pay the rent, death in custody, truth and justice and the law of the land. We'll be highlighting the 50th anniversary of the Aboriginal Tent Embassy, one of the world's longest continuing protest sites, occupying the lawns of what is now Old Parliament House since 1972. Very humiliating that black people, the people that they think so little of, that these black people have found a way of protesting and making their point known the way no other group in this country has ever done. Well, we want them to hear us now. What do we want? Land rights! What do we want it Stay tuned to 3CR from 9am to 4pm on the 26th of January for our annual Invasion Day broadcast. Why does sailors sail the sea? Why does one and two make three? Why does F come after E? Like you because I do. Why are apples coloured green? Why is tinsel sparkling? Why is snow what winters bring? Like you because I do. How many stars in the street?
Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and uh, we've got Tom Feiberg on the line. G'day, Tom. How are you? Good morning, Annie. I'm, I'm well, thanks. Yeah, yeah. Now, Tom, you're from uh, Refugee Action Collective, and uh, you've been keeping tabs on what's going on at the Park Hotel. It's been a pretty wild and woolly period, hasn't it, with the Djokovic drama? Yes, yes, it certainly has. Um, we've in the Refugee Action Collective, try to use the Djokovic saga um, as a real springboard to draw attention to the circumstances of the 32 refugees uh, detained at the Park Hotel Alternative Place of Detention, APOD. Um, and I think given the media attention that this detention of Djokovic has resulted in, it has meant that recently Morrison has had to come out and uh, spread ball-faced lies about them, for instance, saying that they're not refugees. Huh? Um, so they're, they're, that's, that's clearly a lie. 25 of the 32 refugees there um, have official refugee status, and the remaining ones have faced a flawed assessment process. There's um, around 60 Medivac refugees in similar alternative places of detention like hotels across Australia, and there's still hundreds offshore. Djokovic obviously only spent a few days in the hotel, but these refugees have spent um, a total of over nine years being detained, of which uh, two or so were in um, onshore in, in Australian detention centres. Uh, actually, uh, it was interesting to see that the Djokovic drama, as we might as well call it, um, was uh, so uh, overwhelmingly uh, uh, blown up when we're in the middle of a, a really, really disastrous uh, medical emerg- um, crisis um, that it got to a point where it was they were like flogging a dead horse, weren't they? And and so then they, uh, you know, they were trying to use Djokovic drama as a way of diverting people's attention from the federal government's failures in organising some sort of health defence. But then they were corralled into the disastrous um, expose on how they're dealing with uh, refugees. Mm. It is, a, um, I guess, I- ironic in, in that sense. But that's, I guess, one, one of the really uh, interesting and positive flip sides of that is, is that light that has shone on uh, detention. But it, it has also shone a real light on the uh, political uh, discretion that the minister has in, in, in Border Force, that Border Force isn't this neutral uh, thing and that the minister has such special and uh, arbitrary powers that we've seen used in the Djokovic saga, but I think even more so in a, in a devastating way, are used to maintain the indefinite detention of, of these refugees who've committed no crime and who should, should be released and freed into the community. Yeah, it's very distasteful. Uh, uh, there is word that at Villawood, for example, that there is actually a COVID outbreak of um, s- uh, uh, quite serious uh, dimensions, uh, which is another issue that is related to this arbitrary detention, isn't it? That's right. So at Villawood, there is a, is a 
massive outbreak happening at the moment, and we've also seen COVID outbreaks happening in in Melbourne detention centres. So in in Maida um, and in the Park Hotel, there was a really serious outbreak last year as well. Um, in the Park Hotel in particular, the windows can't be opened. Uh, the, the food that the refugees receiving recently was had maggots oh. and had moldy bread. Um, but even if the conditions were the best they could be in the detention, it's still indefinite detention, and it's they still see no have no end in sight. And I think really that's the that that goes to the heart of the the cruelty that um, with the with these powers that the immigration minister has. He could instantly, with the with the stroke of a pen, basically say, um, "Let's free the refugees into the community, give them permanent visas, and that'll be the end of it." But he's decided to, for political reasons, clearly the Liberal Party have decided to to scapegoat and to and to continuously torture these these refugees in the in the detention centres. It was it was really interesting to uh, go past and see the. Uh uh, line up of uh, young reporters. Effectively, they were obviously sent out on uh, on their job, and there was a whole line of uh, um, cameras, and then there were the uh, presenters with their pads, you know, looking on, all uh, shiny eyed. Um, but and here we are. We're seeing this is their this is uh, a story on the streets of Melbourne. Da 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 da. But of course, uh, the, across the road there were the nanas for refugees and uh, others, who you know they've been there trying to raise people's awareness of this actually outrageous piece of um, inhumanity. Uh, in our faces, right here in Melbourne, it's quite extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, it is. The um, other thing that's interesting uh, that has turned up is that there's a push that's being um, uh, by um, Andrew Wilkie's. Uh, he's uh, putting up a parliamentary inqu- inquiry and uh, into ending indefinite and arbitrary immigration detention bill uh, 2021. So there's movement going on, isn't there? That it, there is uh, this, uh, it's not just the um, ongoing uh, group of people who have been supporting uh, a change for refugees. Uh, it's now moving into the parliamentary sphere, isn't it? To some extent, that's that's right. And members of RAC are at the moment contributing a contribution uh, to that uh, to that bill as, as well. So, um, but I guess what we've also seen at the same time is just over the last, I guess, several several years is really the um, indefinite detention becoming more, becoming. The rules around detaining refugees becoming even more tighter, and they've last year um, the government passed an, an, an amendment that um, closed the gap in in the law that allowed a whole spade of uh, refugees uh, to be released on on legal grounds. And at that time, it was both the both that legal challenge 
but also the the masses of uh, protests that were happening outside of the the Park Hotel that that secured um, it was about I think sixty to eighty. The majority of the refugees that were in the Park Hotel at that time were were released, and I do think, given that the the law is now even more stringent and uh, yeah, even more stringent that that it is going to be down to the the protests on the street primarily that are going to put pressure on those politicians and that are that are going to put pressure on the government to to free the refugees. And particularly since, since I think now there's so much attention on the Park Hotel refugees, it would be amazing if the Labour Party actually spoke out about that. Uh, there, there's been four Labour MPs in the past who've spoke, spoken out about uh, Medivac refugees' detention and called for their, their releases. But if Albanese stepped up and ended his silence, that would, that would be a big step towards freeing them. I think. Yeah, I mean, there may be a core of uh, people in Australia's population who actually supports this uh, um, draconian system. But in lots of ways, it would seem to me that this draconian system that has been created by uh, government using legislation to the point where they've actually allowing, using uh, the law to indefinitely detain people, which is inhuman. Mm. Um, I mean, it's just against natural justice. Um, Leads one to think that it's in tandem with some fairly draconian right-wing reactionary governments around the world, that this is actually an international approach to uh, refugees. I, yeah, I think that's that's right. And I think we've seen, unfortunately, we've seen the UK government wanting to wanting to pick up um, Australia's offshore detention policies as well and take inspiration from that. And we saw, you know, when um, Turnbull was was in power, um, Donald Trump saying that he he admired admired how cruel cruel he was as well in regards to uh, the treatment of of refugees so australia is definitely in many ways leading the way on on inhumanity on on refugee uh, torture and that's uh, on the other hand, on the other side that really is a call to call to action for for activists and uh, people who are um, who are who are uh, angered by these injustices to to get involved in the in the refugee movement and and to make that change here because because that does have those consequences as well in terms of overseas people will be looking what what's happening here as as well from the from the left and from the from the wins that we make. Have you heard from the people who are in who are being detained at the? Uh, Park Hotel recently? Uh, I myself haven't. We often have um, detainees at the Park Hotel speaking out um, at at our rallies and at our events. Um, so, for instance, the, uh, the, the point I was making around, um, regardless of the, the conditions of 
of detention still detention. This is this is the point that Mehdi, one of the refugees who's been detained and then has been really active in in sharing their plight uh, in in lots of media, has has made as, as well. So I also encourage everyone who's all of the, all of your listeners to have a look at all of the the articles that have been published by refugees. Um, so featuring re- refugees that are in the, in the detention centers, Mehdi, Adnan, Joy, they are the best to go to to obviously speak about what they're ex- experiencing and to understand what they're going through. And uh, what's RAC up to next? Uh, so the next thing RAC are doing, uh, we're holding a forum on Monday the 31st of January at 6.30 p.m., on the topic of the immigration minister's so-called God powers, which allow the refugees to be indefinitely uh, detained, and also to discuss what we can do to organise to, to end this situation. Um, it will be held both in person and um, at Kathleen's time um, and on Zoom, and you can find the event on our Facebook page. We also have just our regular Monday night organizing meetings also at 6.30 p.m., so I encourage people to get involved with those. Otherwise, we have a rally planned um, in, in early March, but that's still to be finalized. Thanks for talking to us today, Tom. All right, thank you for having me. Melbourne Pride will be taking over Smith Street and Gertrude Street Precinct on Sunday the 13th of February between 11am and 9pm. This free event is a state government initiative delivered by festival partner Midsummer to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the decriminalisation of homosexuality in Victoria. The Fitzroy Precinct will be transformed into a huge street party with two music stages, activities, community stores and more. For more information, visit midsummer.org.au. Midsummer is a 3CR supporter. Three CR Community Radio, giving the voice to the community since nineteen seventy six. 
And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. As I promised, we're going to have a word with uh, Andrew Hewitt. He's from the Victorian Allied Health Professionals Association. Now, since I spoke to uh, uh, Andrew, um, the, there was a very uh, a, a, there was a good announcement. The, Australia, the Victorian Allied Health Professionals Association. Uh, is uh, announced that along with other health unions uh, that they've uh, managed to push back against state governments and employers' attempts to remove access to paid pandemic leave and special leave for healthcare workers. Now, this is uh, really great um, for those who wanted to isolate for the full seven days uh, if deemed a household close contact now um, it may not be you may not be aware but some of the health services had already started to withdraw this entitlement advising healthcare workers to use annual leave if they were needing to isolate in the instance of being close contacts this is uh, this gives you a stark realization of um, how uh, the uh, workers are bearing the brunt and shouldering the heavy load of uh, the COVID um, situation. Uh, But anyway, uh, I talked to Andrew, and uh, it was quite an illuminating conversation. So my name's Andrew Hewitt. I'm the Assistant Secretary of the Allied Health Professionals, uh, Victorian Allied Health Professionals Association. So uh, that's the union who looks after allied health professionals across Victoria, uh, radiographers, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, Social workers, speech pathology, podiatrists, that sort of um, that sort of workforce. Okay, and um, of course uh, that means that uh, your members are intimately involved in uh, the uh, outcomes for government uh, COVID um, arrangements. What's been going on for your members? Yeah, that's right, Annie. Our members are, uh, are integral to the health services in general. I mean, it's impossible to to be a patient and, and go through a journey in a hospital and not interact at, at multiple um, points through that journey with allied health professionals. And so um, we've been you know, integral in terms of the COVID response. Um, and so our members have been heavily impacted by um, the, the COVID um, the pandemic and by uh, what's been applied in terms of the health response, both at a you know, state and a federal level. Um, and, you know, they're, they're suffering... Um, Burnout. There, we've we've lost um, staff, we've lost members, our healthcare workers are you know walking away because they're they're um, they're so tired and, and burnt out, um, and they're they're frustrated because the you know they they've worked so hard for so long to to get to this point, and you now they see it as you know basically as um, the restrictions are uh, allowing the infections to run rampant in the, in the community, with the expectation that the healthcare workers are going to pick up the tab at the end of it. It's really interesting, isn't it, that uh, there's been uh, no discussion, uh, it appears to me, about ramping up or improving public health systems in response to the pandemic. There's been a lot of conversation about uh, keeping supply chains going and uh, big business retaining workers and hospitality retaining workers, but not much money going to public health resources. Is that your understanding? Yeah, and it's it's a it's a very valid and important point in that if you don't look after the health sector, then everything else around it will, will collapse and fall down. And the focus, I mean, quite rightly so, at the moment is about around keeping 
um, trying to keep people at work across across all industries, but importantly across you know food supply chains and and important infrastructures like power and transport and but and emergency services. But ultimately, you know, as I said, the, the healthcare workers and the health services underpin all of that. And if you don't if you don't look after your um, your health services, then um, the rest of the society, you know, that they've got nothing. There's no safety net there. There's nothing to capture them, cap and look after them if, if things go wrong. And that's what we're seeing at the moment. In that we're, you know, we're reaching an exceeding capacity of the health services, and they keep talking about, you know, hospital capacities, and they keep talking about how many ICU beds, and they, they can add more beds, and they can buy more ventilators. But what they can't do is they can't produce the staff to actually um, to look after the sick people. And it's not all about ICU. It's all, also about the people who are in, you know, just in the wards, or the people who don't even get into hospital, those that are, are sick and at home and are requiring requiring healthcare workers to go into the home or to check on them and provide services. And so, you know, they need to be looking um, at the limitations and not the number of beds or the size of the hospital. It's how many healthcare workers that you've got and how many of those healthcare workers are actually healthy and able to come to work. And that's that's the important number that they've just, they, you know, they're just ignoring. What are you hoping that you'd be able to get them to uh, see? I mean, I know that uh, wages and conditions have always been an issue in these areas, but ever since there's been this uh, push to privatise, have government, have uh, small government, that kind of thing, we're really reaching the end of uh, the idea that the free market can actually maintain a public health system when it needs to respond to something of this nature. But even before that, it was a problem, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. And, and look, you, you put the nail on the head. I mean, uh, basically, the health system has been commodified over a long period of time. Um, you know, we saw it sort of develop in the 1990s in Victoria where uh, the Kennedy government basically devolved the structure of the health system in Victoria such that um, we've got over 80 individual um, hospital or health networks that do actually run as you know basically like a business, and they've got their own boards and you know they've got their own budgets, uh, and so it, it's an incredibly fractured system. And in terms of the, the commodifying of health, that's you know comes from a federal level where basically they look at um, the act, the activity and the number of um, patients, and and rather than actually so everything's measured in terms of the dollar rather than on the actual care value or the the health outcome for the uh, for the patient, and and that's that's a problem, um, and we're, we're being punished by it. And at the moment, as you said, this is not this is not something that's just happened to, um, during the pandemic. This is something that was been building up for many years, and the pandemic has just exposed those weaknesses and those vulnerabilities. We've been running the health system um, too lean for too long, and, and getting just getting by, and and constantly squeezing um, the health workers to get more and more out of them, and you know bring on the pandemic and suddenly we realise that there is no more to give and you can't squeeze anyone out of them and they're breaking as a consequence and we've been and the health system is being exposed as being incredibly vulnerable. It's interesting because they spend a lot of uh, publicity time around talking about our heroes and all the rest of it but words are cheap when in act, uh, when they're applying it to uh, people's goodwill and their um, professionalism and uh, the yeah. reason for why they've gone into this area in the first place, which is that they need to, that they're uh, endeavouring to be, bring positive outcomes to the community. Um, but when it comes down to it, uh, 
if you've got politicians talking about dollars and cents, but then saying to your workers that uh, your members said it's all about you, you know, you paying, picking up the tab. That's really what it is, isn't it? Picking up the tab. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and the, the government and employers have preyed upon the goodwill of healthcare workers for far too long. And they've relied on them, you know, uh, accepting um, substandard um, outcomes and, and, and pay rates and, and doing unpaid overtime to, to make, you know, to keep the system functioning uh, for far too long, and that that goodwill has been has been all used up now. And healthcare workers are saying, you know, enough is enough. And and I mean, more broadly than just what's going on in the health sector, we're seeing you know huge workforce shortages at the moment, um, and that's a you know a, a, a huge problem. And what people are, are sort of not putting the pieces of the puzzle together in that, you know, we, we this is not just about getting through the next four to six weeks of the pandemic. We need to have a um, have a healthy workforce going forward into the future, and if we don't, we don't look after the workers. If we don't provide them with adequate um, supports, and you know, at the end of the day, they, they need to pay their mortgages, so they need to have you know good remuneration. Um, then they're going to walk away, and they're going to find something that's not as stressful and not as dangerous, or potentially pays better. And as a consequence, we're going to have trouble uh, retaining these you know these people. Some of these people take you know six, seven, eight years to train. Uh, and to be qualified, then you've got years of experience on top of that, and we're looking at losing them, and we just can't easily replace them. And the replacement costs, you know, far more than it does to actually you know, invest in the, the the workforce we've already got. Um, and you know, that's you know, just simple logic would dictate that we should be, you know, looking after our workforce. You shouldn't have to scrimp on uh, proper outcomes for the patients or the system. No, no, and and look and look, you know, there's there's plenty of research that's been done to demonstrate that, you know, investing in health is is a is a good place to invest because it it, it returns not just for the the outcomes for the people involved, but it returns to the community, uh, it, it returns to society, and you know, a healthy society is a more productive society, and so it, look, it, this penny pinching in, in the healthcare sector is is um, is you know self defeating and and it's going to punish us all and, and we're you know we're being punished now um you know through the you know the the the, the type this is approach that the governments have had over a long period of time um and that's resulted in you know uh inadequate resourcing in terms of the number of uh, healthcare workers that we need to perform you know the role that we need at the moment to, to deal with the pandemic um, and i think and i have you know genuine fears about this going forward would your organisation like uh, the government to step up effectively and uh, uh, take a better approach at uh, training, support, um, ownership of the public health system to get a better result? Yeah, well, I can't speak for all all parts of the health sector, but you know, from from our point of view, from the other health professionals, specifically in Victoria, uh, and at the moment we're going through our enterprise bargaining for the next um, three or four year period. And it seems ridiculous that we're having to, you know, almost barter for some, you know, some minor improvements here or there. Uh, at the same time that we're we're meeting with the government to try and find ways, um, in, you know, workforce crisis meetings to try and find ways to keep the system functioning by keeping people at work. So there's a, there's a complete disconnect uh, at a governmental level between, um, you know, the industrial uh, side of issues and, and just the basic delivery of service and they're, they're totally in, intertwined and, and they cannot be 
separated. You know, if you're not paying people properly, if you're not providing them with the conditions that they need to do their job properly, then that you won't attract them and you will lose them. And, and that's, again, as I said, that's a pretty simple, pretty simple recipe. Yeah, it's funny, you know, because you'd think that if it was all about the free market and all the rest of it, that because there's a uh, scarcity of workers, that you should be able to negotiate good conditions and higher wages in this particular situation. Wouldn't you think that would be the case? Well, look, we've never seen an environment like the current one where there's such a demand on the workforce. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, the power at the moment is with, with the workers, um, but that's not being played out because they're, they're so busy looking after their patients. They're so, they're so heavily in, in, engaged and invested in, in providing health care uh, and, and looking after their, you know, their well-being of their patients that, that they, they're not really looking at in that, in that, um, that framework. But you know, as unions looking after uh, and, and representing healthcare workers, that, you know, it's our job to point out to the government that at the moment you know, the power really is with the workers in terms of you know, the market forces. And so they really should be stepping up. The governments really should be stepping up and, and making a commitment to, to um, you know, better outcomes. So is the government the biggest employer of these allied workers? Oh, oh, by far. Um, you know, you know, the health, the public health system is one of the biggest employers. Um, you know, in, in, uh, on a state level, by by a long shot. Yeah. Okay, and and the uh, management's been devolved into these business um, elements, and therefore they've got fixed budgets, and then they uh, cut uh, uh, whenever they're in trouble. They cut down on the conditions and pay of the workers. Is that how it works? Yeah, just to some degree, and and it's a and it's not a not quite as simple as that because ultimately the the funding for the for these health networks comes from the state from the state level, um, but the the actual running and the distribution within the, uh, the health service is the responsibility of that individual health service. But the so because of the fractured nature of the system in Victoria, um, when we're bargaining for allied health professionals in the public sector, we're dealing with, as I said, over 80 individual employers, yet they don't really have the ability or the capacity to commit to the outcomes because they're not providing the funding to it for those outcomes. So ultimately, that is the responsibility of the government. And so really only the government has that power to actually provide those benefits and those rates of pay improvements that, we, that we're seeking. So what they've done is uh, moved the uh, negotiations, one removed, from the people who have actually got the power to make the decision. I would go even a step further than that. So to, to explain the detail of it, so when, you know, in a, in, to get down to the detail, in, in the bargaining situation, there's a representative for the employers, so um, who's representing all of, the, all of the hospitals. Then there's a representative from the government who would be from the Department of Health who would um, sit in, and then there's... The, the union and um, members, uh, bargaining reps who would sit in, so that, that, that's the, the tripartite nature of the actual bargaining. But the representatives of the government who sit at the, the table, they don't actually have the, the, the authority to actually make those decisions. That has to go back um, to be approved by Treasury before anything's going to actually be approved. And so it's, it's a, an, uh, a process whereby the government manages to keep um, the negotiations at, you know, at more than arm's length. Um, there's, you know, there's those, those barriers uh, that, that make it even more difficult to get, you know, outcomes. And so there's a disconnect. Um, so the people who are making the decisions aren't even sitting at the table. And so that's, that makes it very difficult to, you know, to, to plead your case and to explain to them 
the importance of the, the claims that you're making. I really wanted to understand what was going on for your members. And also it's amusing yeah. to think that uh, there's not enough money, you know, for proper conditions and wages. Oh, I mean, really. It's ridiculous. It is, and it's, it's ridiculous because they've been... And, and it's not a case that there's not enough money because they've been throwing money at, at, um, at the response. They, they've been outside of the, um, the, the budgeted and funded... Um, outcomes of enterprise agreements, they've been throwing money at, at programs to try and um, bridge the gaps and to try and plug the holes. They haven't necessarily been hitting the targets with them and, and I've been expressing concerns about the fact that quite often our members, are, you know, because of the fact that we're not uh, high profile, that we've not been receiving the benefit of a lot of those, um, those funding um, outcomes. Um, but so, as I said before, there's a disconnect between what's happening at an industrial level and what's happening at a, uh, at a, a health crisis level. And if they if they just took some of that money that they're throwing at the health crisis level and pushed it over into the, because they're not they're not mutually exclusive. I'll be at one day. I'll be in a meeting, as I said, trying to give them ideas on how to keep people at work. And the next day, I'll be at a meeting, and they're saying, well, you know. We don't have, you know, what are you going to give up? What are your members going to get up, give up to get this benefit? And that benefit was something as simple as um, access to a tea room or some lockers to put their personal effects in, things that would, you would think would be basic entitlements, but our members have not been getting access to, so we're, so we're trying to build them into, into the, their agreements so they've got better protections. But, you know, when we raise them as, as claims, they said, well, what are the offsets? What are you going to give up so that we can fund them? Um, yet the day before, they were, you know, they were throwing millions of dollars at a, at a welfare package, you know, you know, to provide free coffees or to provide access to counselling services because the healthcare workers are so, um, so uh, mentally and physically damaged as a consequence of what they're doing. So, they're, you know, that just doesn't make sense. So, what you're really saying is that these, you no, know, these people are completely locked into. Uh, some sort of uh, human resources, but they call it people and culture now, um, training, that this is the only mantra that they can think in. They ca they're, they're completely inflexible in their understanding of the situation that they're in. Yeah, yeah. So they're very much, they're operating like silos. So the industrial part is operating um, different to the, to the actual health part. But as I said, they're, they're totally integrated because... The health the people working in health, they rely on the industrial part. That's how they get their benefits. That's how they get paid. That's how they get their lunch breaks. That's how they get their uh, all of their um, entitlements. And so you, you can't divorce the two. Yet that's they're they're dealing with them totally separate. And if you bring up one aspect in the other in the other meeting, I say, well, this is not the forum for that because that's you know that's that's industrial, so it has to be dealt with separately. But so yes, very very frustrating. And so they'll be different. Well, some, and they're not always different teams either. There's sometimes that people are in in both. I mean, obviously we are because the union, you know, we're in all, especially the the leaders are in in all of these meetings. Um, but even from the government's point of view, you'll sometimes have people who are sitting in um, in the IR meetings, also sitting in the in the health workforce meetings, um, and and yet they won't allow you to, you know, uh, well effectively what they would say, contaminate that meeting with, with the issues from the other meeting sort of thing, which is which is just ludicrous because as I said they're not exclusive. They actually there's a huge overlap and they actually there's a huge amount of interplay between the two.
um, and that's that's been an incredible um, failure uh, of, of the you know partly the IR system, but also in the way the government's chosen chosen to manage it. Oh, that's fascinating. And, and we've raised I've raised that I've raised that with them repeatedly, and um, it's fallen on deaf ears. Yeah, very interesting stuff. That's uh, Andrew Hewitt from, uh, he's the Assistant uh, Secretary at the Victorian Allied Health Professional Association. Uh, There were some other things that he brought up which was fascinating to me too. Uh, The business about uh, uh, saying that close contacts can be uh, only related to household uh, situations rather than workplaces has uh, some interesting ramifications, quite obviously. But one of them is that it be- it no longer would uh, fall into work cover uh, situations, um, which is a pretty grim uh, idea, isn't it? And uh, the other thing uh, to mention again is that... Uh, that particular union plus uh, other health um, uh, unions have actually in Victoria been able to establish that uh, um, paid pandemic leave, special leave for healthcare workers wanting to isolate for the full seven days has been achieved. So uh, that's an important victory. Uh, You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie uh, we'll be talking with uh, Don Sutherland in Two Shakes of a Lamb's Tail. Are you a taxi or rideshare driver? CPVV believes that the journey is just as important as the destination. For people with a disability, using taxi or rideshare can be challenging due to refused services, intrusive questions and drivers denying assistance animals. As a driver, you make a difference. Be the reason people with a disability have a great trip. Authorised by CPVV. To the first people, January 26 signifies the beginning of colonialism, invasion and displacement, leading to 250 years of resistance, survival and protest. Join us on the 26th of January, Invasion Day special broadcast, 9 o'clock till 4pm, right here on 3CR, 8.55am. 3CR's First Nations broadcasters will be bringing you black and deadly music, news and views from activists around the country as we discuss genocide, sovereignty, treaty, pay the rent, deaths in custody, truth and justice and the law of the land. We'll be highlighting the 50th anniversary of the Aboriginal Tent Embassy, one of the world's longest continuing protest sites, occupying the lawns of what is now Old Parliament House since 1972. John, this is Annie. Very I'm expecting to speak to you. People. People that they think so little of, that these black people have found a way of protesting and making their point known, the way no other group in this country has ever done. Well, we want them to hear us now. What do we want? Land rights. What do we want? Now? Stay tuned to 3CR from 9am to 4pm on the 26th of January for our annual Invasion Day broadcast. Look 
Is that you, Don? Yes, it is. <laughs> we finally got there. That's great. I'm yeah. so glad you're there. I was just very con- uh, concerned. I thought you're always, uh, you can always be relied on. What's happened to you, man? Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, I, I heard the phone and I picked up, but nothing was happening. And then I've just um, come downstairs to another place and rung again. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, so uh, we were going to uh, have a chat about uh, Australia's uh, manufacturing uh, ca- capabilities now that we're in the midst of uh, COVID and yes. everything is becoming quite obviously um, unravelling. Yes. Uh, yes. What have you found uh, out? Uh, are, we, are we live at the moment? What's that? Are we live? Yeah, we are. Go for oh, it. Well, Excuse me. Okay. I'm sorry. It's just everything. Uh, listeners, you'll just have to forgive uh, the uh, first program shambles. You know, yeah, we're live. Go for it. Oh, terrific. Uh, well, g'day to everyone and a happy new year. And I hope that becomes possible at some stage for all of us, uh, not just a few. And uh, it's wonderful to be back. And the thing that sort of hit me is uh, we go into this uh, new. Uh, these new developments around Omicron and the carry-on from the government uh, and from others is that um, uh, this struggle to make something really quite basic available to everybody, and that is the the rats, the rapid antigen antigen tests. And so I did a little bit of thinking about this, and I thought, well, wasn't there a thing called the Manufacturing Task Force uh, set up way back in the early uh, weeks, if not early months, of the pandemic to deal with things like making sure that uh, commodities like uh, uh, testing testing commodities would be available to the general public. And sure enough, there was. And yet, in the nearly two years now since... uh, well, it is almost two years since the onset of the pandemic in Australia, and then it's nearly two years since all of these emergency measures were put in place. And all of the big hitters that the Morrison government put in charge of developing a plan to do with manufacturing, remember the pivot to manufacturing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm sure they're being paid huge amounts of money for their incredible my uh, brains trust. Yes. Uh, well, I haven't d- dug into that aspect of it. No. Right, it's an angle that I didn't really think about. But sure enough, the Manufacturing Task Force uh, did produce a report for the government, but the government has not been able to translate that into delivery, and nor have they. And they've actually been silent about the situation. And the situation is, of course, that there are not enough rats available in Australia so that the general population can use them, and specifically so that those who are in essential work can use them, in order so that they themselves can have greater control over making sure that workplaces uh, uh, are not sites of infection and can make sure that public safety is safeguarded through the way in which worksites operate. That's amazing. I think the the deeper I dug... The deeper I dug, the uh, you know we're, we're verging on yet another scandal. When you look very closely at what's going on, they're just they're just such. I mean, 
It's really difficult to work out if this federal government's incompetent or or just straight out corrupt. Well, I uh, I'm going to suggest that in this case it's um, uh, there's a little bit of both in both of those things for reasons that we'll come to in a moment. But the main thing is, I think the big question mark is that the flurry of concern and enthusiasm for manufacturing was really uh, not fair dinkum because what it was really about was enabling another mechanism to uh, to escalate the uh, status of the mining industry uh, uh, relative to manufacturing and particularly when it comes to uh, gas extraction, whether through fracking or other means. The very first thing, so just to go back, the, the, the first thing that was set up was the National uh, COVID Commission, the NCCC, and that was headed by a bloke called Neville Power. Neville Power came out of Twiggy Forest's Fortescue. He was a senior executive, very, very senior executive, originally from, uh, you know, from out of Western Australia. He was put in charge of the NCCC. Uh, one of the first things that the NCCC then was set up a number of task forces, and one of them was this manufacturing, uh, modern manufacturing task force. And the person in charge of that was a guy called Andrew Liveris. Uh, now, these two characters distinguish themselves later on, um, uh, well, very quickly in certain ways in the case of Liveris, but both of them in sync advocated uh, natural gas. Uh, in most cases, methane-emitting natural gas as the centrepiece of any pivot to modern manufacturing. And so there wasn't really a clear focus upon the really practical things that needed to be done to uh, enable uh, Australian manufacturing, both the employers and the workers in the workforce and those who would be potentially employed in it, to make their contribution to dealing, uh, you know, in the in a genuine strategy to deal with the pandemic. Uh, it, so it was gas, gas, gas. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the other thing that's fascinating is that they can't um, help themselves. Uh, they have to use the word mon- modern manufacturing as if it's going to be old-fashioned manufacturing. For God's sake, uh, very, uh, it, it's a it's a very good point. The background of all of this, of course, is that in manufacturing, uh, with the support of the employer organisation, and the main one is the Australian Industry Group, and this, this is really important to keep in the background of all of everything that Morrison and the Freudenberg talk about, uh, is that employers are not investing. So even though, even in manufacturing, the volume of profits is going up. The proportion of those profits that is being spent by them in new capital investment is falling. Now, that's true across the economy generally, but it's true for manufacturing. So this is the backdrop. And so the only way in which you know, the word modern makes sense, makes sense is to the, the extent to which the task force and then the government is firstly... Uh, 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 organising 
organising a pivot that helps, that enables manufacturing to deal with the present circumstances of the pandemic, but also is moving in towards advanced digitisation and so on in manufacturing processes, and is also making commodities that are relevant for the medium and longer term future. And that means that means a pivot that enables manufacturing to be both green in its manufacturing processes and also producing products that are not that are not based upon carbon emissions. Now, there is in all of the information that I've looked at so far from government sources, there is precious little evidence that wishful thinking, as expressed in reports, is being translated into serious reality. And the rats is a sort of you know, what not happened around rats production in Australia is a perfect example. Uh, a week ago today, the ABC highlighted that there were probably about four employers who were trying to set up a manufacturing capacity and had been trying to do so to make rats in Australia and had been trying to do so for some time, including in consultations with the government. <sighs> but they had run into all sorts of problems one of them is actually to the point of being able to do mass production has set up a manufacturing operation in Florida, according to that report. Oh, my goodness. So, so this task force and the urgency and the enthusiasm from this very dodgy prime minister was all a blind because what it did instead was enable the climate change, uh, the, the global heating minister... Angus Taylor to grab hold of the report's recommendations around gas to escalate his approach to uh, the future of the industry in Australia. <gasps> this, I mean, this really is quite a... Uh, it's huge. Uh, it's a huge scandal. It, it gets really interesting when you dig further. Ne Neville Power, uh, this is the head of the Commission Task Force. Uh, uh, sorry, the, the COVID commission, right? So he's the head on show of it all. It was shut down, of course, in about May last year, this commission, because, you know, wishful thinking or counting the chickens or whatever you want to call it, Morrison shut it down because... Um, we don't need it anymore. This job had been done. Done. <laughs> I mean, what... What, what a wanker. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then uh, the, the modern... Uh, uh, Mr Power, of course... It has been caught and accused of using his helicopter to go across the Western Australian border uh, 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 against the COVID restrictions of the government from which um, uh, which um, uh, from which his company, uh, you know, the Western Australian government is, of course, the Western Australia is where the company that he was originally cut his teeth in. That's where it's based. And there he is, you know, showing great respect for the rest of his Western Australians by um, uh, being sprung and accused of flying his helicopter across the borders so he could uh, get in and out of Western Australia. Hmm. So that's, and, They're you know, so that's, creepy, they aren't they? They are COVID regulations, and this is the head of the, the Morrison government's uh, COVID task force. Um, uh, Mr Liveris, um, uh, Mr Liveris, uh, who had cut his teeth, being uh, playing a role helping out Donald Trump, 
uh, his big thing, both with Trump and, of course, back here in Australia when he's put in charge of the task force, the manufacturing task force, uh, is to escalate this focus that manufacturing, the biggest thing that could happen to manufacturing would be um, uh, gas extraction. The only honourable voice in all of this in the task force uh, was the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union representative of the task force, Paul Bastian, who, uh, you know, constrained, if you like, from ha- from having taken on the role of being in that task force, nevertheless made two or three different comments at the early stages saying that the focus had to be on uh, uh, getting uh, uh, a stock take done and what could be done at the moment and how that can be developed, uh, fixing up the supply chains, making them more dependent and uh, on a revitalised local manufacturing base. Uh, He was the one trying to soften the impact, the, the focus upon gas and to uh, get it directed more uh, precisely upon what needed to be done. At one point, he said, you know, what needs to be done in the next 10 months, what needs to be done in the next few years and and in the longer term. And all that was on the record, but relatively ineffectual because, and this is where we get to the nub of it, last Friday when this ABC report came out describing the plight of the... Uh, of the, these manufacturers who are capable of making rats in Australia and have been trying to do so. Um, uh, the first thing is the report um, uh, The report didn't um, make any reference at all to the task force, nor to the government's response to the task force, which was to set up about a 1.4, 1.5 or 1.3 billion, there's different reports on that, to actually enable certain specific things to happen in the area of um, in the area of medical products so money was set aside 1.3 billion maybe 1.5 billion was set aside for uh, to enable this pivot to manufacturing and included in the area of medical products now, this that is money, really shocking that, what was announced last Friday was the specific program that was available to employers to access that money was closed down. <sighs> so so uh, now there may be a new one. Who knows? Who knows what will be in the next advertisement from the Prime Minister? Uh, in all of this, the Minister has been silent uh, and... Uh, even the Fraudenberg has barely said a word. All they're talking about is more offshore procurement. That's unreal. Rats. That's so outrageous. It's and and get most of the procurement, by the way, comes from China. Yeah. Yeah. So China, of course, has got its act together with the manufacturing of this very important medical commodity. It's also uh, got its act together in terms of public health. By all accounts. You'd have to say that is true, overwhelmingly true. And there are other pockets, other countries and pockets of countries around the world that have done that. Uh, I mean, this is a very basic question, if I can put it this way. If Cuba, which is subject and has been since the late 60s, 
to the most vicious economic blockade intended in its own words by the United States State Department to harm the people so that theoretically they will rise up against their uh, socialist government. Um, if it can match, uh, if it can match a three, and I think it's maybe even four now, of its own vaccines, and make sure that public health is the first priority, and is a success story in the link between public health and manufacturing, why is it not possible for Australia to do the same? And the simple answer to that is essentially in two. In two ways, you can answer that in two ways. Is that firstly, we don't have a government, nor an alternative government, that has understood the importance of manufacturing capacity in the economy and has instead accepted the dictates of the transnational corporations in the mining or extractive sectors that they, that that Australia should be a quarry to the rest of the world. Uh, and then secondly, unfortunately, we do not have a political entity that enables the people to see that there is a genuine manufacturing-based alternative to that. So uh, all in all, the whole thing is another one of those uh, uh, things that Australia is more and more recognised for, which is that we're all wind. We're not, we're not really fair dinkum about what is needed and that we are, if you like, surfing about a little bit on luck. Yeah, but also we're in the back pockets of a very small group of very rich Americans. Yes, yes. The, the, there, is, there are... In Australia, there are pockets of uh, of the union movement and other places. Uh, there are progressive people in the manufacturing community uh, who put out a useful newsletter that tell you about what's going on in manufacturing, but they're overall, they're ineffective. Manufacturing employers, big, medium and small, don't listen to them very much in terms of investment. And uh, certainly the government plays games with them, and that's what's been going on. I think the, we will see more, another announcement by, by the government about manufacturing that will say something about $1.3 billion or one point Yeah, some bullshit. Just by the by, mm. in terms of what is actually needed and what's possible, $1.3 to $1.5 to to pivot to manufacturing, to make it modern, Mm. which is necessary, is nowhere near adequate. It sounds a lot yeah, to yeah, the yeah. ordinary person in the street, but it's a, it's a drop in the ocean, really. And uh, the debacle around the capacity to make rats available is just a normal thing yeah. uh, in Australia. It's a debacle. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. A, and in my view, it is probably deliberate in the sense that the whole scheme was cooked up to enable Morrison to give the impression he was doing something exciting and also, secondly and more seriously, to find another avenue to justify uh, climate heating, methane-producing gas extraction.
Yeah. Um, it was, uh, I mean, we have to finish, but uh, um, there was a very interesting announcement yesterday about uh, the uh, BHP Billiton. Uh, the headline was something about BHP Billiton being the largest company in Australia, uh, kicking off the Commonwealth Bank. You know, like that's really important to all of us on the street, of course. Um, but the reason for why it is so is because they've decided to uh, uh, marry the two parts of the company together, which they had separated for tax reasons. <laughs> but then if you listen to the report further, it said that it would it would now uh, favour the uh, extractivist part of the uh a business even great more because of the financial backing that it will get. Yes, so, well, you know, so you know, climate change, uh, climate disaster. What's that? Yes, well, they they, they don't care about things like that because uh, BHP. Uh, I, I haven't read this particular article. You can bet that, in fact, the decisions that are being made will have repercussions for you know. The ordinary person in the street, yeah. in some way or another. Yeah, uh, and um, the other one that's very interesting, uh, which we can't really follow up today, is uh, an announcement from these this group of people that I get that is related to finance. That uh, the uh, there's going to be a uh, uh, a massive reduction in the amount of superannuation uh, companies in Australia from about a little over 100 to about 22, and that these uh, uh, superannuation funds are now going to be the big uh, companies going out in for international investment over the next year because this particular newsletter I get is actually aimed at um, investor companies, hedge funds. I think um, I think we do have to get our heads around what's going on in superannuation. Private, in superannuation, both the private sector. Well, it's all private sector, but I mean the the specific private sector, and then the the industry super funds, which are often quite incorrectly, in my view, uh, described as workers' capital. It mm. is workers' capital, but it I should be. The purpose of that implies that workers have some some degree of control over it, which they don't. Um, Except, except through you know the fact that there are union representatives on the boards of the super, the industry super funds. Um, not, but not, not if the federal government has anything to do with it. Yeah. Even that's too much. Yeah, there, just for any of your listeners, before we finish on manufacturing, there is a terrific article actually about what's going on in the super, written by a fellow called Rod Pickett, in the latest Journal of Australian Political Economy. And uh, there have, that draws upon previous articles in that journal about uh, superannuation, and it's worth uh, having a look at um, and maybe discussing at some stage in some way by yeah. someone who's more expert about it than I am. Yeah, because but they're I, all married. I mean, there's huge amounts of money, finance and manufacturing and the future of the country. They're all married together, basically. Yeah. To go back to the manufacturing thing, Today, in a sense, is part one because we haven't said anything about, well, what is going to be the response of the ALP and the Greens in the context of the election? Mm. Keeping in mind, keeping in mind that particularly under the leadership of Penny Wong, the ALP in government and in office 
opposition have been champions of free trade. Yep, yep, that's and true. That is a factor in um, in the, the uh, historical factor in the situation whereby it's such a struggle for manufacturing unions, their members and potential members, to be able to ensure that manufacturing can make the contribution that it's capable of in dealing with the pandemic. Well, perhaps we can talk next week so that we can uh, finish it off, if you're into it. Yes, well, we should have a discussion about it because it's really important that we understand what the alternative government might be doing about a disaster that the uh, current government is perpetuating. Yeah. Thanks very much, Don. All the very best to all, everyone, and we look forward to joining in again. Uh, and that's it for the uh, program. We're re- literally at the uh, line. Sorry about the muck, um, mix-up at the be- beginning of that interview. But anyway, we, uh, my God, what a scandal. Uh, talk, uh, that's it. I won't even tell you about all the things that were on the program. If you want to listen to it back, we'll put, put uh, the podcast up. And uh, listen in next week for the uh, Invasion Day special. Uh We'll go out with a bit of Mia Dyson. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.